0: Hello everyone! Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk niger Politics. And today, as usual, I'm not alone. I'm with my co-host and partner in justice. Since she doesn't like partner in crime, Cho. Cho, do you want to say hello?
1: Hi, people! Welcome back to another episode. Uh, yes, justice, please. I'm not part of crime here, but it's good to have you guys back um, on this
0: episode. Great, great. So the last episode we talked about mental health and the role of if candidates should actually be screened. We also talked about misinformation, fake news and the rest. So if you've not listened to that, please go and listen to it. I think it was really interesting having a lawyer shares perspective on those things so but today we have another special guest and this person definitely has a lot of materials to share and what are we talking about today uh, we can't deny that there's a lot of tribal tension in the country when it comes to selection um during a long time we had three top candidates from three tribes so this individual really knows stuff about nigerian history he's savvy when it comes to data and politics and he's a great writer um if you've not seen his stuff so i'll give him it away it's, it's a man but i'll allow the person to introduce himself mr sunday layer so Joe, that's your cue to do Woo! your normal
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm, I'm hyper one. <laughs> Hi okay. to you, please. Can you tell us who you are?
2: All right, my name is Tudele, and um everything that I am is summed up as being a storyteller. Um I'm a writer, I, I write books, I write films, I write stage plays, I'm a tech entrepreneur, I'm a researcher, and I run a research firm called SBM Intelligence. Um and i um a bunch of those kinds of things, but I think it all sums up to being a storyteller. Um, uh, and I'm one of those that are passionate about telling African stories from the perspective of Africans, centering Africans as opposed to centering the other people that we do. Um, so that's who I am in a nutshell. I live in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, uh, and of course I'm an avid follower of Nigerian politics and um, it's a space that interests me because I understand how important it is to just, uh like I always say, uh, all of the concerted change that non-political actors can, you know, organize to do and drive. One action from a political actor can either change all of that or advance all of that. And that's how important politics is to our life. So it's really, really important. And I'm glad that. know we're having this type of conversation now. Thanks a lot.
0: Awesome.
1: Thank you, thank you. Yes, so straight for the, you know, (laughs) I won't say attack, but just straight to it, because you mentioned non-political actors. So I want to start with this question. So um, do you think writers so far have done justice in communicating Nigeria's history? Any way that is clear to maybe listeners or readers in general.
2: Um, I mean, writers have, and this is not me defending my constituency, but writers have been at the forefront of communicating Nigeria's history. Um, even when formally history was removed from the curriculum and all of that, you could always find Nigerian writers writing, you know, about our history and about things that come from our history um the most popular arguably the most popular nigerian book right is things fall apart by chino achibi and that book is essentially it's essentially his, a historical snapshot of the time from the perspective of africans um, if you keep going you find books like um um chimamanda's half of a yellow sun um it's also a snapshot of a period in history. Um you find Maya Afonja the Rise and Afonja the Fall. Um, those are also historicals. So you find um Walesho Yunka's Death and the King's Horseman, which has just been adapted for film. So I think Nigerian writers generally have, you know, taken the time to write about Nigeria's history. How accessible that writing is is another um <clears throat> is another kettle of fish entirely. Um, but I always say that writing usually forms the base of storytelling in a society. So writing books usually forms the base. But other forms of storytelling are usually built on top of writing. What we've not had a lot of is the other more mass media, more, ma- more mass distributed forms of storytelling building on the work of these writers and on our historicals. So you don't have a lot of films that are historicals, for example. Um, you don't have a lot of, you know, concerts that are historicals. You don't have, if, if you contrast that with um the West or Asia, you find that they tap into their history and the work that their writers have done in these more mass media and projected globally if you watch 10 indian films four of them you know have something to say about indian history if you watch 10 or 15 chinese films you find about maybe 30 40 percent of them are set you know around some history or some myth or some legend from chinese history you don't get a lot of that in our own space but that's changing as well we've begun to have either actual historical or plays or um storytelling that is set in history. Um, we've had a lot of a bunch of stage plays from More and me by Bola Austin Peter's at Terra Culture to the ones on African Kings by Ayo um to you know the films that we've had recently. For example we've had Anikolapo we've had um Swallow we've had half of the yellow sun um we have death and the king's Horseman, of back coming out very soon so we're going to i think that there's a renaissance of historical storytelling in addition history has also been returned to the curriculum so there is an incentive for writers to begin to write books that can can actually sell through the curriculum um to a mass market so a uh, summary of that is that writers are have written and have always written. Um, it's probably what is built on top of what the writers have written that has been missing.
1: Wow! Well, thanks. Like when you were mentioning the movies, I'm like actually, there've been like quite a lot of movies that have come out, um, plays in recent times, and. That's such a good, a good thing to speak about in Nigeria. So talking on the um, education system and how, so I, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, I <laughs> for others, depending on when you're in school. Um, at some point, it just seemed like um, the stories were being told, maybe in literature or government or history as a course, um, at some point there was this um, disconnect because it was almost like a repetition. Um, and then people started to question their identity in terms of tribes and nations. Um, so do you, do you think we can really learn about our current political situation? Maybe we can learn a few things about the current political situation based on our history our culture, our tribes, or yeah, yeah, culture, basically, do you think we can learn a bit on what's happening to the political system from that history?
2: The answer is a very short yes. Um, Human beings are generally a continuum, and you build on your history. Uh, We like I, like I said in the in, in the last in my last book, which is a historical, and which anybody that reads it will be able to see that some of the things that I have said in that book allude to the current political arrangement that we have, and using the metaphor of the collapse of the Oyo Empire as a you know as a frame to tell some things about the current political arrangement. So all in all, you can find explanation for certain things from our history, um, the way Nigeria is arranged, even the way Nigeria was formed, um, the way it is organized, um, and you know how the events that have played out in history and how they have formed identities today, how they have formed relationships between groups today, and how they continue to form those relationships as we go. Um, one example I would give from the social space, which um, when I was growing up, right, um, at that point, I used to have older, older cousins or older aunties that were going to get married. And I'm from Ikiti state. And they would ask them, I hope you are not going to marry an Ijebu person now from outside the Yoruba tribe, all of us are Yoruba to people that are outside the Yoruba tribe. But as at that time, there was still a historical memory of the fact that, and many people will not recognize that that's the reason, or that's one of the reasons at least, but for a long time in Yoruba history, Ijebu people were the itinerant slave traders. So they would be the ones that come into a community to buy slaves and take them to the coast, right? So there was a institutional memory of the fact that Ijebu people are this slave trading and then very, they don't allow other people into Ijebu. They didn't allow other people into Ijebu land because they wanted to hide the secrets of, you know, how their trade happened and all of that type of thing. So they were seen as these guys that would come and buy slaves and secreting and all of that. And that seeped down into, you know, unconsciously, for many, many of those older people that will tell you, ah, I hope you're not going to marry an Ijebu person, they, they, they didn't really know that. That was the reason they were saying that. But their parents had told them, and their parents' parents had said so as well, based on that historical memory. And so um, that's, that's sort of on the social side, how history forms. It's better now because at least now they will say, I hope he's a Yoruba person. They won't specify whether he's Ijebu or not. But... Um, And you find that in different, different... There's a very famous East interview of the Sadawna. I don't know if you've seen that interview where he was talking about the Igbos, right? And this was in the 50s. He was talking about the northernization agenda and his perception of the Igbos. Now, Sadawna is the most important political figure from northern Nigeria in the last 100 years. No... Um, arguments about that, and he expressed certain thoughts, which I will not repeat here, but you will find that those thoughts that he expressed um, culturally have become part of the perception of the North, of the Eos, Um, and whether consciously or unconsciously, it has impacted on political relationships and political arrangements between the North and the speaking parts of the country. So definitely, there is um. An overarching, definitely, there's an overarching um, impact of history on you know the political arrangements, the social arrangements, and social interactions that have emerged in the space that we call Nigeria today. Just yesterday, I was talking. I have a one of our one of the guys that works, our most senior person in the in our research firm. Um, is head of research, and we're having a conversation. He's from Um Akwaibom, and half of his family is in Cameroon. Half of his family are Cameroonians. They're from the English-speaking part of Cameroon, and for them, you know, for us, we see it as Nigeria and Cameroon, right? That two different countries, but for his family. It's just I'm going to visit my uncle there. It, it's not like they are different families because for them, somebody just drew a line on the map and said this part of the map is now in Cameroon. This part of the map is now in Nigeria. For for them as a family, that map, that line is the business of the government. They are still a family together. You have a lot of that across Nigeria. So definitely history um and things that have happened in history play a part in.
1: What has emerged in Nigeria? Yeah, I remember wow. seeing a picture where it was like a gutter that separated, I think is in Niger and Nigeria. And I'm like, literally, you can stand in between that. Yeah, it's a country. <laughs> Corey, over to you.
0: Yes, um, I was for the same chin thoughts that Tunde started with. He, you mentioned about this tension. I want to ask, what do you think is the cause of this tension? right now and in the past it seems that it's increasing as you get closer to the election so what do you think is the cause and what can be done
2: so the fir- the first thing is that you know the the tensions historically was a case of and it's always been that we where differences exist amongst people and the people that rule them try to use those differences to divide to divide them so that they gain an advantage. And you found it as far back as when the British came. Their primary mode of, you know, ruling the space was divide and conquer, divide and rule. So divide people so that they can never really come together to oppose the leadership. And when the British, you know, were leaving, the Nigerian politicians that were going to be taking over from them gradually from the nineteen Mid nineteen forties, after World War II up to independence, in trying to gain political advantage over their rivals, they found appealing to ethnic sentiments to be an easy and convenient um, approach to take, uh, as opposed to purely ideological, you know, approaches or nationalistic approaches, and so they appeal to ethnic sentiments in order to gain political advantage has been a feature and not a bulk in Nigerian politics from before independence. Um, as time has gone on, the quality of people that have then aspired to political office has continued to decline, and they have therefore had to fall back more and more increasingly, even more than those pre-independence quote unquote founding fathers on ethnic sentiments because that's all that many of them have to offer. Um and that's the only path they can see to winning elections. Politicians will always optimize for the easiest route for them to gain power. And many of them have decided that appealing to ethnic sentiments is the easiest route to gaining power in Nigeria. And unfortunately they've been proven right many, 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 many times. So it's very hard for them to change that. Um, having then said that, there have then been incidents that have you know calcified these positions over time. We've had multiple coups, um, which many many people have interpreted. As, some people chose to interpret from an ethnic lens, um, and reprisal coups that were masculines and pogroms. We've had a civil war, um, which everybody tries to act as if never happened uh, except people that were the core victims of it we've had um we've had different you know just epochs of things we've had religious crises. we've had um for example we've had my tight time in the 80s we have Okoram ongoing now we've had those things That in all of these things there's been no real justice happening what, we, what usually happens is that those things get swept under the carpet and everybody tries to, quote-unquote, move on in the name of unity. But when injustice um, in the face of things happen like that, only two outcomes come. The people that perpetrated the injustice become emboldened to do it again. And the people that were victims of the injustice also become convinced that the only way they can prevent it is to help themselves and not depend on the government for help so there's a leg there's a legitimacy problem of central government that um people then find their identities from only their ethnic identities and not the national identity which has never really formed. so all of these contribute to the tension and you will see it from 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 even the 2023 elections where certain candidates have devolved to ethnic battle cries to lay their claim on why they should be president, you know, of the Federal Republic of Nigeria.
0: So it is, that that's really the why it persists. Well put, I do really like that response. So I, let's continue on that line. Um, regarding the whole leaving out history for now uh, what do, who do you think benefits the most from that exemption and how can we turn that direction or change it to a better knowledge of our history what do you think we can do about that
2: uh, the, the people that have left it out are the people so two things have been thoroughly destroyed in nigeria in order to make sure that people do not have uh, the knowledge to question and oppose the current um, arrangement, and if I when I say current arrangement, not current elite arrangement. So on whatever side of the political divide, there's an elite arrangement which is organising themselves for access to oil money. That's all Nigeria is about, from the perspective of the elite. And every election that happens today, at least so far, has been rearranging the chair of who has closest access now, who does not access amongst the elite. Um, For them, destroying um, the knowledge of history and more generally destroying education has been beneficial into creating a bunch of Nigerians who have no historical knowledge and who have no educational mental rigor to assess things. So that when they then sell this ethnic tribalism as, you know, the only means to rally. Um, People cannot resist because they don't have the mental acuity to do so. People are unable to um, point out to other positions, ideological positions. People are even unable to see the relationship between certain actions that the elite champion and the negative, you know, impact in their lives that those things have. People can't make the relationships. And that, that is sort of the benefit to the elite of a destruction of the education system, as well as a destruction of historicals. Also do not forget that there are many of the people that are in the elites, that's were participants in the creation of many of the very, very um, dastardly parts of our history, that have been responsible for further exacerbating the ethnic divides and the situations that we have in Nigeria. Many of them will not want their participation in those activities to be common knowledge. I'll give an example. Um, there, we, many of us know about the Asaba. I don't know if you know about it, but it's become more common knowledge recently about the Asaba massacre. Um, for a long time, that's the the reality of what happened in Asaba was hidden away from most people. It wasn't taught. It wasn't something that people knew about, and all of that. But um, as that reality has emerged more, people are able to ask questions about those that were responsible for it. So many people that were responsible for those things don't want that type of accountability, and that's why it's convenient and beneficial for them for history to not be, you know, in the um, curriculum to be taught to people. But that's changing again, like we've said, more non-school methods I've used now are, are emerging for teaching history. I have a YouTube channel, for example, where I talk about African history generally, but really key focus on Nigerian history. We've had films that are able to circumvent the stringent censorship that the Nigerian video film and censors brought puts in place to make sure that those types of films don't come. Um, we have those films going to you know, streaming platforms that are not under their restriction any longer. And Nigerians are able to see them now. So we have that. We have YouTube. We have all sorts of um, solutions where people are able to now create this content and circumvent all of the gatekeeping to teaching history that has been there. And of course, you have books that are emerging, books like mine, um, or books that even document unfolding, ongoing history. Books like Ilmathan's um, Born on a Tuesday, for example, that made Stark the reality of you know, Almajiri children in the North in a way that many people didn't want to emerge to Southerners that were less aware of those issues. So these are some of the things that are, are happening, and it's hoped that there will be more and more in that direction. Um, History has been reintroduced into the curriculum, just to be clear on that. Um, But what what is being taught, you know, the quality of the history or the content of the history that is being taught is another matter. Um, Whether you have young people that are being taught that Mongo Park discovered Niger, um, you know, those types of things are the things that you
0: question and say, why are we teaching history like that? Quite
1: interesting. Um, God help us in this country. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what I have to say. But wow. sorry, just, <laughs> just flowing from that, um, on a serious note, elections are coming hmm. next year. Again, God help us. <laughs> but really, do you think storytelling um, is or can be used as a tool for elections? So where maybe how um, one of the candidates is portrayed or how they are sort of defined or do you think storytelling should be used or can be used as a tool um, for elections? Storytelling
2: is a core tool that is used in electoral, electoral campaigning. Um, if I, if I asked you about Obama's Um, campaign for example it was storytelling when he went up and gave a speech that documented a a story in a certain way that shot him into national limelight and then um, even the narrative creation so election campaigns about narrative creation and storytelling is a powerful tool to create narratives Um, just recently for example the narrative that Tinobu um, created around how he was primarily responsible for Buhari being able to win the elections. That's storytelling and that's narrative creation that culminated in the popular and local. He essentially crafted a narrative that people ran with, people that our supporters ran with. You know. um, obese narrative is also something. So it's going to be at the core, and every campaign has someone, has some people, that are very, very, very focused on the narratives that are that formed about and around the candidate. Um, it will be an important tool. It is an important tool. And I know this for certain because we've done an electronic strategy for a couple of people. So I know for certain that narratives, narrative forming and storytelling are important. You'll remember the kind of narrative that um, Gulag Jonathan created when he was going to be president, the popular I had no shoes narrative every president, everybody that goes into office creates a narrative that becomes the overarching definition of what people equate or
1: relate that person to so definitely okay yes. so my next question is um, so I watched um an interview you did um I mean on one of the um TV stations, um, and you mentioned how leadership amplifies weaknesses of men. Um, So what do you think are the common weaknesses in our leaders, or would I say even candidates that are contesting for elections, and what qualities should we actually be looking out for? Um, Also knowing that they're using a narrative for themselves.
2: That statement is very accurate. Leadership. Um, success generally amplifies the weaknesses of men. Um, and leadership is a is a specific type of success where the person not only is successful but also has power to then carry out whatever quote unquote thoughts that come to their head because everybody is um forced to or everybody is compelled to follow what that leader said if I lead a company and I say this is the direction the company should go almost everybody has to go that direction or they leave that's that's how it works right so leadership makes that happen it's a specific type of success that not only amplifies your weaknesses potentially but also gives you the power to really really amplify your failures and your successes if you may it's the reason why in most um systems that work, there are usually checks and balances to make sure that, you know, the any express will of the leader goes through setting checks so that the person doesn't just do whatever pops into their head. Um, it's why dictatorships are a very, very, very dangerous way to run a country because you only depend on whether it's a good or a bad dictator, not a good system. Um, so having said that, the first um trait, right, that is a weakness that you see in most leaders that from these parts is, and it's also a cultural thing where the elder or the person that has the power um expects to be obeyed without question and everybody around the person um where culture that you know listens and obeys and respects and all of that. So once a person is the leader right, everybody defers to that person. You find it not just in political spaces, you find it even in business and and social spaces as well. Everybody defers to what the person has said and what the person has said becomes, it's very hard, therefore, for leaders in this part to get honest feedback. Um, In fact, people organize um, in such a way that they mask reality from the leaders here. And so the leader is on an ego trip. The leader is usually told that he's the best thing since sliced bread, or since pound yam, as I like to say, because I make it. You know, and that leader carries on in that way, and therefore, whatever errors that leader makes is just amplified and perpetuated. Um, for example, when President Buhari would have said, "Close the border," right. That's a that was a bad idea. That was a bad policy, but everybody fell in line and supported that policy, right? That's that's what the way leadership is structured in this part does. Um. So that's one. Um. That's one weakness. I mean, there are also many other weaknesses. We've talked about ethnic, ethnic, you know, tribalism and ethnic, you know, nepotism, those kinds of things are very fraught here where people only trust their people that look or sound like them and so they make sure that all the important things go through or go to those people um that's another weakness that we have here we have just a a, a um there is this thing in in Nigeria where because Low, what I call it low-quality corruption um, because there, there's corruption everywhere. Even China that has developed and lifted its people out of poverty has massive corruption. But the, the type of corruption that they have is very different from the type that we have here. It's low-quality corruption that consumes before it tries to do anything. In most other places, it's corruption that facilitates the doing of things that causes growth. But in Nigeria, it is a corruption that doesn't care about if the thing gets done. A classic example, 31 states in Nigeria out of 36 states are flooded at the moment. And the source of that flooding is a dam in Cameroon, of most of that flooding, at least. A dam in Cameroon released water. Um, And some people wanted to start fighting the Cameroonians, And then people pointed out that, hey, 40 years ago when that dam was being built, the agreement was that Nigeria was supposed to build a dam twice the size in Nigeria. And what will happen is if they release water, that Nigerian dam will receive that water and then control its further release so that it doesn't just... Because flooding only happens because you release a massive volume of water at once, right? So if, if there's another dam in Nigeria that controls that release, then places won't get flooded. And... Nigeria's, from what I gather, money for that dam was released, but it was never built till tomorrow. In fact, in 2015, when this administration came in, it was one of the things that was debated extensively by the Senate, because there was a huge situation like this in 2012 as well. But still till today, that dam has not been built. And it's that type of um, failure you won't find in in many other places, the dam gets built. Maybe somebody schemes off the top or somebody makes money from the land um, that was sold. Those kind, that, that kind of corruption is what happens there. But will that dam get built? It will get built. In Nigeria, it's very possible that that dam doesn't get built. And every year, the places get flooded and people have even then built further corruption around the fact that flooding happens every year so that they can make money from um supplying relief materials. That's the type of corruption we have in Nigeria that is, you know, amplified by going into office in Nigeria. People are just creating schemes of this nature without, you know, trying to even facilitate the doing of things. Um, I think those three uh, those three things I've mentioned are good enough. Um as a general,
0: as a general frame for what kind of weaknesses we see amplified. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I want to ask, what do you think um, we should expect at the polls next year? So regarding shockers, things, um, or maybe your predictions, what do you think we should expect at the upcoming election?
2: Um, it's it's going to be very hard for any of the candidates to get an outright win at the moment as, as things are start so the way nigeria's constitution is you need to have the majority of votes but you also need to get 25 percent in 24 states i think 24 25 states two-thirds of the states in nigeria whatever that number is um except serious change happens none of the candidates seem poised to get that at the moment. none of the major candidates um there are three major candidates plus one um that is trying to be major. Uh, that's so uh, the three major are Tinubu, Atiku, and Obi, obviously. And the one that is trying to be major is Kwakwantu, but his, uh, his base is restricted to two states in his geopolitical zone. So there's not a lot happening. He's not contesting on the national scale, he's only contesting for regional relevance. And even that, he may not get. Um, so Nigerians may need to be preparing to do to go into a runoff election for the first time, um, and that has its implications. Um, for each of the candidates, they have different. So Tinubu's strength is mobilisation. Um, his party is incumbent, um, but he th- there are a couple of things he has been forced to make, or some of them he has decided to make himself. For example, selecting a Muslim. Running mate that was an automatic. So at the point he didn't have. If he selected a Muslim running mate, he would alienate a good chunk of the Christian North and Christian South. But if you elect, if he selected a Christian, Northerner running mate, he would have alienated a good chunk of the Muslim North, right? And he had a Muslim Fulani Northerner as opponent. So, yeah, I think he decided to go. But that loses him a lot of support, and he's struggling and all of that. PDP, on the other hand, on the article, it's a house divided. Um, When an opposition party is going into a general election, one of the indicators that they are likely to win is that they go in with a unity of purpose. PDP doesn't have that at the moment. Um, but Atiku has the most widespread support. It doesn't have majority support in many states but well, he has enough support in most states to at least edge over the 25%. Um, so if he does that, maybe he will. He can, um, you know, get... And there is this fear of, you know, tribal politics coming into place where um, the Northern establishment um, essentially, tacitly, not openly, but in the background, supports an article presidency because it's in Northern it doesn't traditionally have support in the North but this is a different elections Um, and then there's Obi who has you know is is riding a wave but in elections your party structure needs to deliver some things for you and then your your people that are your personal supporters will bring in the extra Um, Obi's party has a lot to do between now and you know the elections in order to put the proper structure in place. Just, it's something as simple as mobilizing um, party agents for the elections. There are 200,000 polling units across the country, and you need a party agent in each polling unit. Just being able to mobilize that. It's not about, and you pay them, but not even just about the money, actually finding 200,000 people in different polling units across the country requires some rigor that his campaign hasn't shown. Um, but again, a lot of young people are coming into the mix and they will definitely impact on this thing. There are three key factors that British will consider. For the first time in a very long time, in like 20 years, Buhari is not going to be on the balance. Buhari was is the only candidate in Nigeria that if he runs today, let's assume constitutional allowed him to run today. He's going to get 12 million votes whether he campaigns or not, but he's not on the ballot, and his personal support is not <clears throat> transferable to his party, it's personal to him. If he leaves the PC today and he goes to an MPP or ADP or someone non party, that support will follow him from APC to so that. That's that's Buhari, but it doesn't transfer to Tinubu as a, as a candidate, and you will see it in the way Tinubu has been campaigning, he's not campaigning as the APC candidate per se, is campaigning as, I have seen, this is what I've done before. So he's not counting on a Buhari structure support. So that's one key thing. Um, It's the first time you don't have Buhari on the ballot in a long time. And you don't have any of the candidates that has overwhelming personal support, the way Buhari had and was a factor. It's also the first time that you don't have somebody that who was from what we call the class of 1966, one of the Generals from that time, or one of the key political players of the 1966 coups who have controlled Nigeria since then, none of them is on the ballot this time. So it's a different Nigeria, it's a different bargain. Third is that there are a lot of the voters that are both first-time voters and have never experienced military rule they have a very different perspective to, um, to democracy and democratic participation uh, than those who lived under military and then got into democratic uh, dispensation. So those three factors tend to you know, impact on these elections to be very different from what people are used to. A fourth factor is the electoral act, which has been very well designed so that it's very hard to rig elections right now the only way you can impact the elections is two you either buy votes vote buying and vote buying has become very expensive now or you um, resort to violence to suppress voters from coming out those are the only two ways politicians have at the moment i mean they will try other things but those are the two key ways so what it means is that you really do have to get people to vote for you. You can't just write results or hold a EINEC, an INEC wreck um, hostage to declare you as the winner like was done by Rothschild in the past. All that kind of stuff is gone. All the shenanigans that also happen before the <clears throat> during the primaries and with submission of candidates, the Electoral Act also fixes a good number of that. So it's a very solid law. INEC has never been better prepared to conduct an election as it is going into twenty twenty three, so we expect a solid election that will reflect largely the will of the people, um, and it's likely that that election will give us our first run off in history, if things come. But five months is a long time in Nigerian politics, so this is as things stand today.
1: Yeah, looking forward to looking forward to it. So now back to Tivoli. What should we expect from you? Um, any new works coming out on um, what's happening?
2: Okay, so if you're in Lagos <laughs> on October 22nd, um, I'm, the Alliance Francaise Library at the Adenuga Centre in Ekoi is hosting me to, um, to a book discussion on their forja books and a wine tasting event. So you can come, Ooh. you have good wine um we'll discuss the books and all that it's on october 22nd it's a saturday it's 6 p.m to 8 p.m i'll be there and then i'll be in abuja like early november as well again just having these conversations um why we, we should be starting shoots on my next film in november november sometime in november sometime in the middle of november we'll be Starting, we'll be going to on set to shoot my next film. Um, it's it's a that one is set in the modern times. Um, and then next year, we're shooting our first historical, um, on the 1851 bombardment of Lagos. I can't wait, actually. I'm very excited about it. Uh, great,
1: great, great, Uh, great. So,
2: those are a few things that are are coming up.
0: Sure, I'm sure you love it.
1: Yes. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then the question that I know, Corey, from the beginning of this um, conversation, I've been waiting to ask this very question. So, who are you voting for in the coming elections? The of life. Of specifically. <laughs> yeah. How am I voting? Well, you guys want to know that one. Well, I, I think our listeners also sure wants to
0: know. It's just This is not true.
2: So we can have we can have a call this again because of um, some things that I'm doing uh, that I would rather keep my well I'm voting private. Um, I'm doing I run a research firm that is doing political strategy for a bunch of people that are contesting in this election. Um, and while I always remind them that um, Tundile as a person is different from Tundile's company, um, I'm sure you know that most people. Find it very hard to make those distinctions. So, yes. exactly. Yeah. So, I'd, I'd rather just keep my choice of vote so that so mm-hmm. that my partners my partners will not appear in my dream. <laughs> well, very well,
1: well. No okay. problem. Well said. So well said. <laughs> we'll let it slide. We'll let it slide. <laughs> well, no problem. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for opening our eyes to some things that we might have maybe pushed under the rug. But we're very happy to have this conversation, and we hope our listeners will learn a lot from this, both the young and the old. So, right. thank you guys for listening. Please follow us on our different social media um platforms. Um, until next time, this is Chill and Curry signing out.
0: Peace out, guys.
1: <laughs> Bye.